and mountains shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. We have not even to risk the adventure alone, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. Joseph Campbell on The Hero's Adventure. He was the teacher everyone would like to have. He was the archetype, to use one of his favorite words, the original, the ideal. One of his students at Sarah Lawrence College, where Campbell taught for almost 40 years, described him as a beaming flashlight into the darkness. The director, George Lucas, said of Campbell, if it hadn't been for him, it's possible I would still be trying to write Star Wars. When I met him late in his life, college students across the country had been reading Campbell's influential book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, for years. Scholars poured over his four-volume study of mythology, The Mask of God. Now he was working on a monumental historical atlas of world mythology. Yet beyond the classroom and lecture halls, only a relative handful of people had ever seen Joseph Campbell in person or heard him speak. That changed with our series. As the broadcast played out over six consecutive weeks, the accumulating insight and wisdom had an enormous unexpected impact. Thousands of letters poured into public television stations around the country. One that I received soon after the first broadcast from a woman in Kew Gardens, New York, summed up the collective reaction. She said, I will never be the same. The series has been repeated over the years, and people continue to stop me in public to say simply, Joseph Campbell changed my life. I say to all of them, yes, he was a great teacher. But exactly how and why he touched so many different lives, I can't say. But I can say this. At a time when millions of people were yearning for a way of talking about religious experience without regard to a rigid belief system, Campbell gave them the language for it. He said myths were clues to our spiritual nature and they could help guide us to a sacred place within where we might unlock the creative power of our deeper unconscious self. And then there was the brilliant clarity he brought to the great and enduring theme of mythology across the ages, the hero's adventure. He tracked that theme in the symbols, stories, and rituals that keep appearing in different cultures, coming alive in literature, art, and religion, and today in movies, comic books, and yes, 
video games. Campbell believed the most heroic of all acts is the courage to discover who you are and what you would like to be, to slay the savage dragon of the ego, and to follow your bliss to the truth of your life. We taped these conversations at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in California over the last two summers of Campbell's life. Naturally, we begin with his favorite subject, the hero with a thousand faces. Why the hero with a thousand faces? Well, because there is a certain typical hero sequence of actions um, which can be detected in stories from all over the world and from many, many periods of history. And uh, I think it's uh, essentially, you might say, the one deed done by many, many different people. Why are there so many stories of the hero or of heroes in mythology? Well, because that's what's worth writing about. I mean, even in in uh, popular novel writing, you see, these the main character is a hero or a heroine. That is to say, someone who has found or achieved or done something beyond the normal range of uh, achievement and experience. A hero properly is someone who has given his life to something bigger than himself or other than himself. So in all of these cultures, whatever the costume the hero might be wearing, what is the deed? Well, there are two types of deed. One is the physical deed, the hero who has performed a a war act or a physical act of heroism, saving a life, that's a hero act, Uh, giving himself, sacrificing himself uh, to another. And the other kind is the uh, spiritual hero who has uh, learned or found a, uh, a mode of um, experiencing the, uh, the supernormal range of human uh, spiritual life and then come back and communicated it. It's a cycle. It's a going and a return that the hero cycle represents. But then this can be seen also in the simple initiation ritual where a child has to give up his childhood and become an adult, has to die, you might say, to its infantile personality and psyche and come back as a self-responsible adult. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. We're in our childhood for at least 14 years And then to get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition, finding the source of life to bring you forth in a uh, richer or more mature or other condition. So that if... We happen not to be heroes in the grand sense of redeeming society. We have to take that journey ourselves, spiritually, psychologically, inside us. That's right. And uh, Otto Rank, in his wonderful, very short book uh, called The Myth of the Birth of the Hero, 
He says that everyone is a, a hero in his birth. He has undergone a tremendous transformation from a little, uh, you might say, water creature living in a realm of the amniotic fluid and so forth, and then coming out, becoming an air-breathing mammal that ultimately will be self-standing and so forth. This is an enormous transformation, and it is a heroic act, and it's a heroic act on the mother's part to bring it about. That's the primary hero, hero form, you might say. Still a journey to be taken after that. <laughs> There's and, a big one to be taken. And that journey is not consciously undertaken. Uh, do heroes go out on their own initiative? <laughs> well, they're both kinds. A very common one that appears in Celtic myths of someone who has followed the lure of a deer or animal that uh, he has been following and then carries him into a range of forest and landscape that he's never been in before. And then the, the animal will undergo a transformation and become the queen of the fairy hills or something like that. That is one of not knowing what you're doing. You suddenly find yourself in full career of an adventure. There's another one where one sets out responsibly and uh, intentionally to perform the deed. For instance, when Ulysses' son, Telemachus, was called by Athene, go find your father. That father quest is a major hero uh, adventure for young people. That is uh, the adventure of finding what your career is, what your nature is, what your source is. Um, he undertakes that intentionally. Then there's one into which you are thrown and pitched, for instance, being drafted into the army. You didn't intend it, they are in. Hey! You're in another transformation. You've undergone a death and resurrection. You put on a uniform. You're another creature. So does the heroism have a moral objective? The moral objective is that of saving a people or saving a person or saving an idea. He is sacrificing himself for something. That's the morality of it. Now, you, from another position, might say that something was something that should not have been realized, you know. That's the judgment from another side. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't destroy the heroism of what was done. Absolutely not. Well, that's a different uh, angle on heroes than I got when I was reading, as a, as a young boy, the story of Prometheus going after the fire and bringing it back and benefiting humanity and suffering yeah. for it. I mean, Prometheus brings fire to mankind and consequently civilization. That's, by the way, a, a universal theme. What is The hero, the, the fire, fire theft theme with a, usually with a relay race after it. Often it's a blue jay or a woodpecker or something like this that steals the fire and then passes it on to something else and something else, one animal after another. And they're burned by the fires as they're carrying it on, and that accounts for the different colorings of animals and so forth. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, a worldwide myth, the if fire he, theft. Do these stories of the hero uh, vary from culture to culture? Well, it's the degree of the illumination that, uh, or action that makes him different. There is a typical early culture hero who goes around slaying monsters. Now, that is uh, in the period of history when man is shaping his world out of a wild, savage, unshaped world. Well, it has another shape, but it's not the shape for man. He goes around killing monsters. 
So the hero evolves over time, like most other concepts and ideas. And well, he, he evolves as the culture evolves. Yeah. <clears throat> now, uh, Moses is a, is a hero figure. In his uh, ascent of the mountain, his meeting with Yahweh on the summit of the mountain and coming back with the rules for the formation of a whole new society. That's the hero act. Departure, fulfillment, return. And uh, on the way, there are adventures that uh, can be paralleled also in other traditions. Now, the Buddha figure, it's like that of the Christ. Of course, 500 years earlier, you could match those two traditions right down the line, even to the characters of their apostles or their monks. Christ. Uh, now, there's a, a perfectly good hero deed formula represented there. And he undergoes three temptations. The economic temptation, where the devil says, you look hungry, young man, change the stones to bread. Jesus said, man lives not by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God. Next, we have the political temptation. He's taken to the top of a mountain and shown the nations of the world and says, you can come into control of all these if you'll bow to me. And then, now you're so spiritual. Let's go up to the top of Herod's temple and see you cast yourself down and the, God will bear you up and you won't even bruise your heels. So he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, those are the three temptations of, of Christ. Uh, in the desert. The Buddha also goes into the forest, has conferences with the leading gurus of the day, and goes past them, comes to the bow tree, the tree of illumination, undergoes three temptations. They're not the same temptations, but they are three temptations. And one is that of lust, another is that of fear, and another is that of social duty, doing what you're told. And then both of these men come back and they choose disciples who help them establish a new way of consciousness in terms of what they have discovered there. The, these are the same hero deeds. These are the spiritual hero deeds. Moses, the Buddha, Christ, Muhammad. Muhammad literally, and we know this about him, he was a camel caravan master, but he would leave his uh, home and go out into a little mountain cave that he found and meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. And one day a voice says, write, and we have the Koran, you know. It's an old story. Sometimes it seems to me that, that we ought to feel pity for the hero instead of admiration. Uh, so many of them have sacrificed their own needs. They all have. And very often what they, what they accomplish is shattered by the inability of the followers to see. Yeah. They come out of the forest with gold and it turns to ashes. That's another motif that occurs. In this culture of easy religion, cheaply achieved, it seems to me we've forgotten that all three of the great religions teach that the trials of the hero journey are a significant part of it, that there's no reward without 
renunciation and without a price. The Koran speaks, Do you think that you shall enter the garden of bliss without such trials as come to those who passed before you? Well, if you realize what the real problem is, and that is of losing primary think primarily thinking about yourself and your own self-protection losing yourself giving yourself to another that's that's what a trial in itself is it not there's a big transformation of consciousness that's concerned and what all the myths have to deal with is transformation of consciousness that uh, you're thinking in this way and you have now to think in that way well, how is the consciousness transformed? By the trials. The test that they hear on the coast. or certain illuminating revelations. Trials and revelations are what it's all about. Well, who in society today is making any heroic myth at all for us? Do movies do this? Do movies create hero myths? I don't myths? know. Uh, now, my experience of movies, I mean, the significant experience I had of movies was when I was a boy, and they were all really movies. They weren't talkies. They were black and white movies. And uh, I had a a hero figure who uh, meant something to me. And he served as a kind of model for myself in uh, in my physical character. And that was Douglas Fairbanks. I wanted to be a synthesis of Douglas Fairbanks and Leonardo da Vinci. That was my idea. But those were models, were roles that came to me. Does a movie like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure for the hero? Oh, it's perfect. It does the the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. One of the wonderful things, I think, about uh, this... uh, Uh, adventure into space is that the narrator, the uh, artist, the one thinking up the story is in a field that is not covered by our own knowledges, you know. There was much of the adventure in the old stories is where they go into regions that no one's been in before. Well, we've now conquered the planet, so there are no empty spaces for the imagination to go forth and fight its own uh, war, you know, with uh, powers. And uh, that was the first thing I I felt there. There's a a whole new realm for the imagination to open out and live its forms. Do you, when you look at something like Star Wars, recognize some of the themes of the hero throughout Mythology. Well, I think that George uh, Lucas was using standard mythological figures. The old man as the advisor, well, specifically, what he made me think of is the uh, Japanese sword master. Remember, a Jedi can feel the force flowing through him. I've known some of those people, and um, this man has a bit their, their character. Well, there's something mythological, too, isn't there, in the sense that the hero is helped by this stranger who shows up and gives him some instrument, a sword or a sheaf of light, shaft of light. He gives him not only a a physical instrument, but a psychological commitment and a psychological center. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. Well, he had him exercising with that strange weapon and then pulled the mask over. That's real Japanese stuff. 
When I took our two sons to see it, they did the same thing the audience did at that moment when the voice of Ben Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker in the climactic moment, Use the Force, Luke. Let go, Luke. The audience broke out into they did. elation and to applause. Well, you see, this thing communicates. It is in a language that is talking to young people today, and that's, that's marvelous. So the hero goes for something. He doesn't just go along for the ride. He's not a mere adventurer. Well, a serendipitous adventure can take place also. Um, you know what the word serendipity comes from? It comes from the Sanskrit, serendipa, the Isle of Silk, which was a former, the, formerly the name of Ceylon. And it's a story about a family that's just rambling on its way to Ceylon and all these adventures take place. Uh, so you can have the serendipitous adventure as well. Is the adventurer who takes that kind of uh, trip a hero in the yeah, mythological He sense? is ready for it. This is a, a, a very interesting thing about these uh, mythological themes. The, <clears throat> the achievement of the hero is one that he is ready for, and it's really a manifestation of his character. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, and I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. The mercenary, Solo, begins as a, as a mercenary and ends up as a hero. He was a, a very practical guy, a, uh, a materialist in his character, at least as he thought of himself. But he was a, a compassionate human being at the same time and didn't know it. The adventure evoked a quality of his character that uh, he hadn't known he possessed. I love you. He thinks he's an egoist. He really isn't. And uh, that's a very lovable kind of human being, I think, and there are lots of them functioning beautifully in the world. They think they're working for themselves, very practical and all, but no, there's something else pushing them. What did you think about the scene in the bar? That's my favorite, not only in this piece, but of many, many pieces I've ever seen. <laughs> well... Where you are is on the edge. You're about to embark into the outlying spaces. And, uh, a real adventure. A real adventure. This is the uh, jumping off place. And there is where you meet people who've been out there. And they run the machines that go out there. And you haven't been there. It reminds me a little bit in um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island the atmosphere before you start off the adventure. You're in a seaport and there's old salt seamen who've been on the sea and they that's their world and these are the space people also. I got a bad feeling about this. The wall! Don't just stand there try and brace it with something! But my favorite scene was when they were in the 
garbage compactor. And the walls were closing in, and I thought, that's like the belly of the whale that Joe Campbell... That's what it is. Yeah, that's where they were. They were down in the belly of the whale. What's the mythological significance of the belly? It's the descent into the dark. Jonah in the whale. I mean, that's, that's a standard motif of going into the whale's belly and coming out again. Why must the hero do that? The whale represents the uh, personification, you might say, of all that is in the unconscious. Psych in reading these things psychologically, water is the unconscious. The creature in the water would be the dynamism of the unconscious, which is, is dangerous and powerful and has to be uh, controlled by consciousness. The first stage in the uh, hero adventure, when he starts off on adventure, is leaving the realm of light, which he controls and knows about, and moving toward the, uh, the threshold. And it's at the threshold that the monster of the abyss comes to meet him. And then there are two or three results. One, the hero is cut to pieces and descends into the abyss in fragments to be resurrected, or he may kill the dragon power, as Siegfried does when he kills the dragon. But then he tastes the dragon blood. That's say he has to assimilate that power. And when Siegfried has killed the dragon and tasted the blood, he hears the song of nature. He has transcended his humanity, you know, and uh, re-associated uh, uh, himself with the powers of nature which are the powers of our, of our life, from which our mind removes us. You see, this thing up here, this consciousness thinks it's running the shop. It's a secondary organ. It's a secondary organ of a, of a total human being, and it must not put itself in control. It must submit and serve the humanity of the body. Join me, and I will complete your training. When it does put itself in control, you get this father, the man who's gone over to the intellectual side. I'll never join you! If you only knew the power of the dark side. He isn't thinking in, in, or living in terms of humanity. He's living in terms of a system. And this is the threat to our lives. We all face it. We all operate in our society in relation to a system. Now, is the system going to eat you up and re relieve you of your humanity? Or are you going to be able to use the system to human purposes? Would the hero with a thousand faces help us to answer that question about how to change the system so that we are not serving it? I don't think it would help you to change the system, but it would help you to live in the system as a human being. By doing what? Well, like Luke Skywalker, not going over, but resisting its, its uh, impersonal claims. But I can hear someone out there in the audience saying, well, that's all well and good for the imagination of a George Lucas or for the scholarship of a Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. but that doesn't, isn't what happens in my life. You bet it does. If the person doesn't listen to the demands of his own spiritual and, and heart life and uh, insists on a certain program, you're going to have a schizophrenic crack-up. The person has put himself off-center. 
he has aligned himself with a programmatic life, and it's not the one the body's uh, interested in at all. And the world's full of people who have uh, who have stopped listening to themselves. In my own life, I've had many opportunities to commit myself to a system and to go with it and to obey its uh, requirements. My life has been that of a maverick. Uh, I would not submit. You really believe that the creative spirit ranges on its own out there beyond the boundaries? Yeah, I do. Something of the hero in that. I don't mean to suggest that you see yourself as a hero. No, I don't, but I see myself as a maverick. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps the hero lurks in each one of us when we don't know it. Well, yes. I mean, our life evokes our character, and you find out more about yourself as you go on. And it's very nice to be able to put yourself in situations that will evoke your higher nature rather than your lower. Give me an example. I'll give you a story. I'm dealing with an an Iroquois story right now. There's a motif that comes in American Indian uh, stories very often, what I call the refusal of suitors. A girl with her mother lived in a wigwam on the edge of the village. She was a very handsome girl, but extremely proud, and uh, would not accept any of the boys. They proposed to her through the mother, and the mother was terribly annoyed with her. Well, one day, they're out collecting wood, and they have gone a long way from the village. And while they are collecting the wood, a terrific darkness comes over them. Now, this wasn't the darkness of night descending. When you have a darkness like that, there's some magician at work somewhere. So uh, the mother says, uh, well, let's uh, gather some bark and make a little wigwam, a bark wigwam for ourselves, and uh, collect wood for a fire, and we'll just spend the night here. So they do that, and the mother falls asleep. And the girl looks, and there's this magnificent guy standing there with a wampum sash, glorious and feathers and all this kind of black feathers. He says, I've come to marry you, and I'll await your reply. She accepts the guy, and the mother accepts the man. And he gives the mother the wampum belt to prove that uh, he's serious about all this. So he goes away with the girl. She has acquiesced. Mere human beings weren't good enough for her, but here's something that really, ah, so she's in another domain. Now, the adventure is marvelous. She goes uh, with him to his village, and they enter uh, his uh, lodge. The people in there greet her, and she feels very comfortable about it and all. And then the next day, he says, I'm going off to hunt. So he leaves the lodge, and the door is closed with a flap. There's a flap. When he closes the flap, she hears a strange sound. So the, there's the whole day, and she's just in the hut. And as evening comes, she hears that strange sound again. And the door flap is flung off, and in comes this prodigious serpent with his tongue darting. And he puts his head in her lap and says, now you must search my head for lice and things like that. And she finds all kinds of horrible things there and kills them all. And then he withdraws. And in a moment, 
after the gate door has been closed, it opens again, and in he comes, the same beautiful young man again, and said, uh, were you afraid of me when I came in just now? No, she said she wasn't at all afraid. Next day he goes off to hunt. And then she leaves the lodge to gather wood. And the first thing she sees is an enormous serpent basking on the rocks. And then another. And then another. Then she begins to feel very badly, very homesick and discouraged. Then the evening, the serpent, and then the man again. The third day, when he leaves, she decides she's going to try to get out of this place. So she goes out, and she's standing in the woods thinking, and a voice speaks to her, and she turns, and there's a little old man there. And he says, darling, you are in trouble. The man that you've married is one of seven brothers. They are great magicians. And uh, like many people of this kind, their hearts are not in their bodies. There is a collection of seven hearts in a bag that is hidden under the bed of the eldest to whom you are married. You must go get that, and then we'll deal with the next part of the adventure. She goes in and finds a bag of hearts and is running out, and a voice calls after her, Stop, stop, it's the voice of the magician. And she continues to run. He says, you may think you can get away from me, but you never can. And just at that point, she hears the voice of the old man. He says, I'll help you, dear. And he's pulling her out of the water. She didn't even know that she was in water. What does that say to you? That's to say you have moved out of the hard land, the solid earth, and are in the field of the unconscious. And she had pulled herself into the uh, transcendent realm and got caught in the negative powers of the abyss and she's being rescued now by the upper powers what you have done has been to elevate yourself out of the local field and put yourself in a field of higher power, higher danger and uh, are you going to be able to handle it if you are not eligible for this place into which you put yourself, it's going to be a demon marriage. It's going to be a real mess. Uh, if you are eligible, it can be a glory that will uh, give you a life that is, is yours in your own way. So these stories of mythology are simply trying to express a truth that can't be grasp any other way. It's the edge, the interface between what can be known and what is never to be discovered because it is a mystery transcendent of all human research. The source of life. What, what is it? No one knows. Why are stories important for getting at that? Well, I think it's, it's important to live life with a knowledge of its mystery and of your own mystery. And it gives life a, a new zest, a new balance, a new harmony to do this. I mean, therapy and psychological therapy, when people find out what it is that's ticking in them, they get straightened out. And uh, what is it that life is? I find thinking in mythological terms uh, has helped people Invisibly, you can see it happen. How? What does it do? It, it uh, erases anxieties. 
it puts them in accord with the inevitables of their life uh, and and they can see the uh, the positive values of what are the negative aspects of what is positive it's uh, it's it's whether you're going to say no to the serpent or yes to the serpent as easy as that no to the adventure yeah the adventure of being alive of living when i was growing up tales of king arthur tales of the medieval knights tales of the dragon slayers were very strong in my world dragons represent greed really the european dragon guards things in his cave and what he guards are heaps of gold and virgins and he can't make use of either of them but he just guards there's no vitality of experience either of the value of the gold or of the female whom he's guarding there psychologically the dragon is one's own binding of oneself to one's ego and you're captured in your own dragon cage and uh, the problem of the psychiatrist is to break that dragon open him up so that you can have a larger field of uh, relationships Jung had a patient come to him who felt alone and she drew a picture of herself as uh, caught in the rocks from the waist down she was bound in rocks and this was on a windy shore and the wind blowing and her hair blowing and all the gold which is the sign of the vitality of life was locked in the rocks and the next picture that he had her draw had followed something he had said to her suddenly uh, a lightning flash hit the rocks and the gold came pouring out and then she found reflected on rocks round about the gold and there was no more gold in the rocks it was all available on the top and in the conferences that followed those patches of gold were identified they were her friends she wasn't alone but she had locked herself in her own little room and life but she had friends do, do you see what i'm meaning this is killing the dragon and uh, you have fears and things uh, this is the dragon that's exactly what that's all about at least the european dragon chinese dragon is different what is it it represents the vitality of the swamps and the dragon comes out beating his belly and saying ha 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 ha, ha. you know that's another kind of dragon and uh, he's the one that yields the bounty and the waters and all that kind of thing he's the great glorious thing but this is the negative one that cuts you down so what you're saying is if there are not dragons out there and there may not the, be the, the real dragon is in you and what is that real dragon that's your ego holding you in what's my ego what i want what i believe what i can do what i think i love and all that what i regard as the aim of my life and so forth it might be too small it might be that which pins you down 
And if it's simply that of doing what the environment tells you to do, it certainly is pinning you down. And so the environment is your dragon as it reflects within yourself. How do I slay? How do you? Slay that dragon in me. What's the journey I have to make? You have to make. Each of us has to make. You talk about something called the soul's high adventure. My general formula for my students is follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Can my bliss be my life? Well, love or my it life's will be work? your is life. Is it my work or my life? Well, if the work that you're doing is the work that you chose to do because you are enjoying it, that's it. But if you think, oh, gee, I couldn't do that, you know, that's your dragon that's locking you in. Oh, no, I couldn't be a writer. Oh, no, I couldn't do what so-and-so is doing. Unlike the classical heroes, we're not going on our journey to save the world, but to save ourselves. And in doing that, you save the world. I mean, you do. The influence of a vital person vitalizes. There's no doubt about it. The world is a wasteland. People have the notion of saving the world by shifting it around and changing the rules and so forth. And no, any world is a living world if it's alive. And the thing is to bring it to life. And the way to bring it to life is to find in your own case where your life is and be alive yourself, it seems to me. That's the power of the teacher, isn't it? To, to bring vitality to others, to make others see the vitality in them. Children. Well, it happens. That's one of the delights of teaching. I mean, when you're not teaching in order to have an easy job, but because you, you really have something to teach and you love young people and you want to give what you've got found to them. And to see them come alive is, is the reward of teaching. Do you say I have to take that journey and go down there and slay those dragons? Do I have to go alone? If you have someone who can help you, that's fine too. But uh, ultimately, the, the last trick has to be done by you. In all of these journeys of mythology, there's a place everyone wishes to find. What is it? The Buddhists talk of nirvana. Jesus talks of peace. There's a place of rest and repose. Is that typical of the hero's journey? That there's a place to find? That's a place in yourself of rest. Now this I, I know a little bit about from athletics. The athlete who is uh, in championship form has a quiet place in himself. And uh, it's out of that that his action comes. If he's all in the action field, uh, he's not performing properly. There's a center out of which you act. And Jean, my wife, a dancer, tells me that in dance, this is true too. There's the center that has to be known and held. There, it's quite physically recognized by the person. But uh, unless this center has been found, you're torn apart. Tension comes. Now, the Buddha's word is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological state of mind. It's not a place like heaven. It's not something that's not here. It is here in the middle of the turmoil, what's called samsara, the whirlpool of life conditions. The, that nirvana is what? 
is the condition that comes when you are not compelled by desire or by fear or by social uh, commitments. When you hold your center and act out of there. And like all heroes, the Buddha doesn't show you the truth, the illumination. He shows you the way to. The way. But it's got to be your way too. I mean, how should I get rid of fear? The Buddha can't tell me how I'm going to do it. There are exercises that uh, different teachers will give you, but they may not work for you. Um, and uh, all a teacher can do is give you a clue of the direction. He's like a lighthouse that says there are rocks over here and steer clear. You talk a lot about consciousness. Yes. Most people hear that term and, like me, have only a veiled understanding of it. What is it? Gene and I are, are, are living in Hawaii, and uh, we're living right by the ocean, and we have a little lanai, a little porch, and uh, there's a coconut tree that grows up through that porch, and it goes on up. And uh, there's a, a, a kind of vine plant, a big powerful thing with leaves like this, that has grown up the coconut tree. Now that plant sends forth little uh, feelers to go out and, and clutch the plant and it, it knows where the plant is and what to do and where the tree is and it, it grows up like this and it opens a leaf and that leaf immediately turns to where the sun is. Now you can't tell me that leaf doesn't know where the sun is going to be. All of the leaves go just like that, what's called heliotropism, turning toward where the sun is. That's a form of consciousness. There is a, a plant consciousness. There is a animal consciousness. And we share all of these things. You eat certain foods and the bile knows whether there's something there for it to go to work on. I mean, this whole thing is consciousness. I begin to feel more and more that the whole world is conscious. Uh, certainly the vegetable world is conscious. And when you live in the woods, as I did as a kid, you can see all these uh, different consciousnesses relating to themselves. Now, it is a part of the sort of um, Cartesian uh, mode to think of consciousness as being something peculiar to the head, that this is the organ originating consciousness. It isn't. It's an organ that inflects consciousness to a certain direction, a certain set of purposes. But there's a whole consciousness here in the body. And uh, the whole living world is informed by consciousness. I have a feeling that uh, consciousness and energy are the same thing somehow. Where you really see energy, there is consciousness. Scientists are beginning to talk quite openly about the Gaia principle. There you are, the whole planet as an organism. Mother Earth. And you see, if you will think of ourselves as coming out of the Earth rather than as being thrown in here from somewhere else, you know, thrown out of the Earth, we are the Earth. We are the consciousness of the Earth. These are the eyes of the Earth. And this is the voice of the Earth. What else? How do we raise our consciousness? Well, that's a matter of what you are disposed to think about. And uh, that's what meditations are for. And all of life is a meditation, most of it unintentional. 
A lot of people spend most of it in meditating on where their money's coming from and where it's going to go, but that's a level of meditation. Or if you have a family to bring up, you're, you're concerned for the family. Uh, these are all perfectly uh, imp- very important concerns, but they have to do with, with physical conditions mostly and spiritual conditions of the children, of course. But how are you going to communicate spiritual consciousness to the children if you don't have it yourself? So how do you get that? Then you think about the myths. What the myths are for is to bring us into a, uh, a level of consciousness that is spiritual. Just for example, I walk off 52nd Street and 5th Avenue into St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've left a very busy city and uh, one of the most uh, fiercely economically inspired cities on the planet. I walk into that cathedral and everything around me speaks of spiritual mystery. The mystery of the cross, what's that all about there? the stained glass windows which bring another atmosphere in my consciousness has been brought up onto another level altogether and I am on a different platform and uh, then I walk out and I'm back in this one again now can I hold something from that well certain prayers or meditations that are associated with the whole context there uh, these are what are called mantras in India uh, little meditation themes that hold your consciousness on that level instead of letting it drop down here all the way and then what you can finally do is recognize that this is simply a lower level of that the cathedral at Chartres which you love so much oh, well. also expresses a relationship of the human to the cosmos doesn't it Well, I think everyone who has spent any time at Chartres has felt something very special about this cathedral. I've been there about eight times. When I was a student in Paris, I went down there about five times and spent one whole weekend, and I identified and uh, looked at every single figure in that cathedral. I was there so much that the concierge, this little old fellow who took care of the cathedral, he came to me one noontime and he said, uh, would you like to go up with me and ring the bells? I said, I sure would. So we climbed the flesh, the, the tower, up to where the great bell was, the great enormous bronze bell. And uh, there was a, a little, like a seesaw, And he stood on one end of the seesaw, and I stood on the other end of the seesaw. And there was a little bar there for us to hold on to. He gave the thing a push, and then he was on it, and I was on it. We started going up and down, and the wind blowing through our hair up there in the cathedral. And then it began underneath, bong, you know, bong, bong. I tell you, it was one of the most thrilling inventions in my life. And uh, when it was all over, he brought me down. He said, I want to show you where my, my room is. Well, in a cathedral, you, you have the nave and then the transept and then the apse. And around the apse is the choir screen. Now, the choir screen in Chartres is about that wide. And he took me in a little do- uh, door into 
the middle of the choir screen, and there was his little bed and a little table with a lamp on it. And when I looked out, there was the black Madonna, the vitrine, the window of the black Madonna, and the, that was where he lived. Now, there was a man living in a meditation, hmm? a constant meditation. I mean, that, that was a very moving, beautiful thing. Well, I've been there time and time again since. What do you find when you go there? What does it say about all that we've been discussing? Well, <laughs> the first thing it, it, it says is it takes me back to a time when these principles informed the society. I mean, the... You can tell what's informing the society by the size of the, what the building is that's the tallest building in the place. When you approach a medieval town, the cathedral's the tallest thing in the place. When you approach a 17th century city, it's the political palace that's the tallest thing in the place. And when you approach a modern city, it's office buildings and dwellings that are the tallest things in the place. And if you go to Salt Lake City, you'll see the whole thing illustrated right in front of your face. First, the temple was built. The temple was built right in the center of the city. I mean, this was the proper organization. That's the spiritual center from which all flows in all directions. And then the capital was built right beside the temple. And it's bigger than the temple. And now the biggest thing is the office building that takes care of the affairs of both the temple and the political building. That's the history of Western civilization from the Gothic through the princely periods of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to this economic world that we're in now. In New York now, the debate is over who can build the tallest building, not to praise, but to build the tallest building. Yeah, and they are magnificent. I mean, some of the things that are going up in New York now really are. And this is a kind of architectural triumph. And what it is is the statement of of the city. Uh, We are a financial power center, and uh, look what we can do. It's a kind of virtuosic, acrobatic stunt. Will new myths come from there? Well, something might. You can't predict what a myth is going to be any more than you can predict what you're going to dream tonight. Myths and dreams come from the same place. They come from uh, realizations of some kind uh, that have then to find expression in symbolic form. And uh, the myth, the only myth that's going to be worth thinking about uh, in the immediate future is one that's talking about the planet. Not this city, not these people, but the planet and everybody on it. That's my main thought for uh, what the future myth is going to be. And what it will have to deal with will be exactly what all myths have have dealt with. The maturation of the individual, the gradual, uh, the pedagogical way to follow from dependency through adulthood to maturity and then to the exit and uh, how to do it and then how to relate to this society and how to relate this society to the world of nature and the cosmos that's what the myths have all talked about that's what what this one's got to talk about but the society that it's going to talk about is the society of the planet and until that gets going you don't have anything there's that wonderful photograph you have of the earth seen from space Mm. And it's very small, and at the same time, it's very grand. 
you don't see any divisions there of nations or states or anything of the kind. This might be the symbol, really, for the new mythology to come. That is the country that we are going to be celebrating. And those are the people that we are one with.